Saying low, Apple Music. Barbara Streisand. That's it. That's all I really have to say. No long kind of random observations in the introduction on this one. Even just trying to find the words to describe the contribution that Barbara Streisand has made throughout her life to people, you can't do it. It's like, sure, every award has been won. She's created a life for herself where she chooses when and when not to play. And at the core of it is this incredible force of nature who has made these unbelievable albums, directed these incredible films, but also such an aesthetic human where design is at the core of everything. And the only thing that probably matters more to her than that is just doing right by humanity. So when you get to spend an afternoon with Barbara Streisand talking about anything and everything that sort of comes to mind, you never forget it. I'm so glad it was recorded. Please enjoy it. Thank you for welcoming us to this incredible place. And, oh, and I'm glad you like it's it. It's just a joy to be able to spend some time with you and talk about music. Oh, Talk great. about life. Thank you. And in particular, you know, I mean, starting with with recent life, you were, you were saying before that, um, you know, you, you don't even think you've been into this place in recent memory because I think we all just sort of stopped and took a look around at our surroundings and then sort of figured out where we need to go and, and not need to go, you know? And in the end, it was just like, once quarantine kicked in, we all just decided like, oh, let's let's just be very calm and, and, and try to find our feet. How was it for you? Well, it gave me a solid bit of time, which mm. is about a year, to finish my book that I started many, many years ago and never really found the time to finish it. Mm. So... I loved that time. I loved not having to go anywhere, not have to go to events that I'm invited to. Mm. You know, I liked being with Renata and my husband and my dogs. And so I was very happy. I loved not going to doctor's appointments or dentists. <laughs> yeah. I swear. <laughs> That's what I've just been doing over you know, the last few months. And... I was surprised. I was even thinking I had cavities, but I don't have any cavities. So it was really great. I feel like in many respects, once success really came your way and and you sort of started to build a life for yourself that was going in that direction, like what do I really want to do versus what people expect me to do? Yeah. And and I guess to some degree, if you if you have enough success, the construct of that, you're able to make more decisions of that nature. But at what point did you realize, wow, I, I actually don't have to do anything that I don't want to do anymore, just the stuff I want to do? I think it was at a very young age that I thought I'd like to be the best at singing. But first it was acting. I wanted to be an actress first. I only became a singer because I couldn't get a job as an actress. And I thought, I knew I had a good voice from when I was a kid and we used to sing on the stoops in Brooklyn. And I was known for having a good voice and no father because every other kid had a father. Right. So I was unique. And um, when you have a kind of void in your life and a strange childhood, you know, I wasn't seen. It was like I was pushed around or, you know. My mother wanted me to be a, uh, a teacher or work in the school system like my father did. My father was a teacher, but my mother was a bookkeeper in the school system. 
And she said, you know, you get vacations and paid vacations. I thought, no, I really want to experience happiness. That I don't know. I see people going to dinner with their parents or, I mean, eating in their house. We never sat down at a table at a specific time to have dinner. So I think in the back of my mind, it was always about that. How, how do you get fulfilled? And that's what I did. I mean, I wanted to be the best at whatever I do. So I knew I had a good voice when I couldn't get a job. As an actress, I started to sing, you know, entered a talent contest and won. And that led me to my goal of being an actress. And being in films, you know, as a child, I would sit in my bedroom when I had a bedroom because I slept in the living room till I was 13. That could make you ambitious. Yeah. Like to get a bedroom. Yeah. You know, I finally got a bedroom when my brother got married and I would read movie magazines and eat Breyer's coffee ice cream. That was, to me, you know, the end all and the be all. That was success at that age, you know. <laughs> but my mother never said, follow your dreams or you could do this. No, she didn't think I could ever succeed at that. So she wanted me to have a, you know, a yearly paying job. Yeah, something safe, something... Yeah. Secure. And I think that's why, in a way, I dedicate this book to my mother. Yeah. Uh, not only my mother, but the father I never knew. Because she incentivized me to do the opposite of what she thought I should do. Do you see what I mean? It's yeah. like I was part of Arista, which I found out. That's the honor society at the, the high school I went to. Yeah. By the way, you know, Clive Davis named his company That's Aristar right. after that. I guess he was a member of it before me. But they invited my... I said, I, I want to be an actress. My book reports were on Stanislavski, mm. you know? Mm. And um, I guess it was escaping reality in a way mm. to be an actress, you know? I think all the arts are to some degree. I think... I think a lot of what drives the artistic spirit is escapism. The idea also yes, of, yes, yes. of recognizing something deep inside that didn't sit right with you mm. as a child, a fracture right, of some description, right, right. and trying to find a way to understand it is, is what leads you into that expression, that desire to express yourself. Right. That's why I think it's so important for kids to have music and art. Yes in their programs, which they've taken out. Yeah, it drives me crazy that, you know, when we get into this time where, where costs need to be cut, there's this default reaction that the arts get it in the neck. And I just- Well, it's because so many displaced kids and unhappy kids lacking a parent or whatever, being poor, they have no way to express themselves. So they, you know, belong to gangs or they, mm. they're so angry at life. Art would have given them some form of expression, a way to let go, release themselves, you know? I walk around this, this beautiful home and I think it's just full of fulfillment. It just feels like you have filled it full of perhaps the things that you pined for when you were sleeping on the couch when you were 11, 10. Is that fair to say that it's all led to- Yeah, yeah. since I was eight. You're absolutely right, actually. Another title for my book, it's not going to be named this, but it's the sub-story of my life, mm. is My Search for Beauty. 
Oh, it's amazing, though. So everything you're looking at, you know, like that tassel, it's on the bottom of that chair. Yeah. It's so beautiful to yeah. me. I bought this painting of this woman. I was going to ask. I bought that before I built this house because of, you see the blue table? Yeah. I said, that's what the color of the living room, living room, screening room should be. And it is. So, you know, once I get a, a tip, then I can fulfill the dream of it. You know what I mean? The fabric for the walls, the color of the paint, and the color of beautiful wood. You're very aesthetically... Oriented. Oriented, aren't mm -hmm. you? And it's so funny to me because we are all in love with the charisma and the voice and the talent. Hmm. But it feels to me like, even in the short time we've been talking, that mm -hmm. you're more focused on the aesthetic. <laughs> That's funny. It's like a Trojan horse. Like, we're all just going, wow, the voice. And you're like, yeah, yeah I'm yeah, too yeah, busy yeah. trying to figure out what the fabric's going to be on this couch. Right. Is that fair? Totally. Hmm. It's totally right. I walked out of my door. I haven't been out of the house where I paid attention to it, yeah. you know. I wanted to be in a good mood, but I noticed my orchids were not in bloom. Right. And that disturbs me. I said, you mean, if I don't walk out that door, nobody's going to notice these orchids are dead? <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I went to my doctor's, having, not seeing him, you know, for my yearly physical for almost two years, I saw his orchids were dead on his desk. I immediately sent him a fresh orchid if he would just get rid of the dead ones. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like life. Yeah. And, and walking into a room and not taking anything for granted. Yeah. I feel like we've all been focused on the wrong things. Like we focus on the fact you don't play live and you don't do all these things that people would expect of someone in your situation. Yeah. But it seems to me you're just focused on other things. Like, oh, yeah. Well, I turned down directing a movie because I had to finish this house. And it took five years. Mm. Also, there was another reason I, the person wouldn't let me change the script. I can't go on to a, a project yeah, and yeah. not have a chance to bring it to full fruition. Yeah. And I like doing that. I like, being, I like doing private things. Hmm not public things. You know, I can get fulfillment out of designing a house and then furnishing it. And it took five years to go into all that detail. Oh, it's worth it. It's so beautiful. But I think, yeah. I think about, that's a great statement. I like to do private things. Yeah. And, it, and it really puts a ribbon on a lot of those expectations over the years. Yeah. I wonder at what point you realized, because you were doing very public things at the beginning of your career yeah. and it went very fast, you know. Yeah. Grammys, Academy Awards, all very yeah. quick. At what point you were but, but able But they to satisfied me. Then. In, in other words, I didn't need to go on. Right. It's like even now, it's like the thought of, well, I couldn't get the movies I wanted made now. Mm. Mm. I don't know how much that has to do with ageism or what, but I was very fortunate that the three movies I directed I had complete control over. You know, when I was making Star is Born and I had final cut, in other words, every frame of that film was something I wanted to say or do. I was attacked for being in control. You know, so I did an interview. I remember the first question of that interview, 1977, I guess it was. So 
you want to be in control? You're a control freak? And I thought, I want to be in control of what I can control. Yeah. I can't control life in general. I can control my work. But to even have to defend your work for over a statement like yeah. that, yeah. I feel at least now a statement of that nature for the most part feels archaic. And, and because there are things changing for the better and a long way to go. Back yeah. then, it just must have oh, been boy. a constant fight. Yeah, a constant fight. And when I redid it, I added a scene that I had cut out uh, last year or the year before the quarantine and Star is Born that I stupidly cut out and I put it back in and changed the ending because I never got around to editing it like a rock and roll kind of thing. And actually, the people liked it when we showed the film in preview, so I left it. But we had shot things that you could cut. And so I thought it would be fun to do that, right? When I was re-putting the, the music back in, because it was the end of the film and there's a, a Chiron, I forgot to put one of the songs I wrote in there. I was so afraid of being attacked you know, that I gave away my producer credit. Oh. Yeah, I, I put myself as something else in the crawl. I thought, what the hell? That's why it was so hard to do things uh, and be attacked for them. Do you know what I mean? In, in terms of Yentl, let's say, right? Because I was producing and directing and writing and acting in it, it was that I was attacked. How, how do you dare do do all those jobs. I was like, because when I wanted to fulfill my vision of the movie. Mm. Well, you can't fulfill a vision. You really can't unless you have control of the, you know, what's going to be on that celluloid. How do you edit something that you didn't want filmed or something? I had, it was such an incredible experience. And in Europe, it was so fabulous it wasn't America. Europe says, oh, wait a minute. You're a first-time director, but, you know, we're used to women in power. We're used to Margaret Thatcher being the prime minister at that time. We're used to having a queen. So they were so wonderful. You know, it's like my amazing camera operator. and The English crew, you know, they were so kind to me. And they wrote a letter to the press because they they were defending me you know that I was getting bad press or something in those tabloidy papers and they wrote this letter that talks about she never raises her voice you know she speaks very quietly brings in tea and pasties every not every day but you know I wanted to I was so grateful to yeah. this crew Nobody printed it, though. None of those papers printed the letter that what everyone a, signed. What a hell. What a, what a mountain to have to climb just to, to your point, fulfill some kind of artistic impulse, some desire to tell a right, story. to tell a story. To tell a story. That made a point about how hard it was yeah. for women to do the things they wanted to do. Yeah. Look what's happened. I mean, isn't it great for women now? Getting better. Oh, my God. I mean, I started off with, you know, I'm leaving centers at UCLA, and uh, the one I started in 1984, my first contribution mm. 
to doing something about education. It was at USC, men and women in society in a changing world. The dynamics, I'm finally getting it at UCLA. Nobody studied it, but now it's changed. And that was in 84. That was in 1984. Yeah. Because I loved, whenever I made money, I wanted to give it away. Mm. I keep some for myself, but do something like my father intended, you know, about education. My next contribution was to the Environmental Defense Fund because I had read about climate change. So I love to have a purpose that's bigger than myself. It's not about financially making myself richer. It's nothing to do with it. I think about a song. When you talk about the idea of of the correlation between what you receive versus what you're willing to give, and and if you get it right, Mm -hmm. they feed each other. Mm -hmm. The more that you actually think of others, the the more positive energy you get back. I think about a song like Be Aware, Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorites on this new album released mm-hmm. me too. When I first listened to it, mm-hmm. I was shocked that it was 50 years old. I talk about a 50th birthday present to actually come out the way, finally come out and be heard the way that it probably should have been heard 50 years ago, but be more present today yeah. than it even was then. So wow. I kind of got two questions around that song. Yeah. One is, yeah. in many respects, did, did a song like that, you think even subconsciously puts you on this path of like, okay, I'm seven or eight years into my career, maybe even less, and I'm singing a song right now about awareness and about the idea of not just being so self-absorbed and so focused on my own purpose. Do you think of it in that way? Well, because in the 60s, I was so upset by racial tension. So I know I did a concert about Selma. In other words, all those things, you know, SNCC. I wanted to help the world. I wanted to help our country. I couldn't stand what was going on in the Vietnam War. So that song was written about that, 1972 or something like that. That song. 71. 71? 50, yeah, 50 years. Really? Yeah. Seems like yesterday. Sounds like yesterday. Isn't that, well, I had so much fun with my wonderful engineer to work on these songs. Mm you know, in quarantine. So we did it by Zoom. Yeah. And so I would just put a robe on, go from my house to grandma's house. Cup of tea, cup of coffee, whatever you need. Where I work. Yeah. And just get down to it. And we worked that way. And I could really hear what I'd like to do with it. Bringing out little fills that were so fabulous, but you never heard them yeah. 50 years ago. It's so lush, the sound of this record. I know, so the lush. marimba, I think they were. Oh, it just floats into your ears. When you press play on it and mm-hmm. be aware it begins, it's like it just kind of folds on you. Oh, good, good, good. But I mean, I must have mixed that thing at least four times. It's like I kept wanting more and more of those things. My engineer thinks like I do, hears like I do. Beautiful. So that I could raise something a tenth of a dB. In other words, some engineers would say, well, wait, you want, if you want to raise that, you've got to raise it 5 dB before you hear it. Yeah. I say, no, no, no. This is below 1 dB. But that's the place of feeling. I, I have a theory about that because I've tried that in studios myself. And yeah. it's like, no one else is going to hear that. I'm like, but I feel it. That's right. And you know what? My husband always says to me, I remember what you said once 
when you were working with the color of the film that I was doing at the time. I met him during The Mirror Has Two Faces. Yeah. And I, he says, I was standing there while you were doing color with Technicolor, or, you know. And you said, I can't even tell you. It's a, I don't even know how to describe it. I want to feel a little more red. Yeah. But it's, you know, since I just did this album, I'm t- thinking in terms of de- decibels. But it's um, one-tenth, and, and, you know, maybe we should go two-tenths, and then maybe we have to reduce it. But my engineer, Joachim van der Sag, such a delightful person, as well as being so talented, he heard like I did he in those like, little teeny yeah. slices. Yeah. Isn't it great when you find people that, that don't, aren't maddened by that process, that they yeah, actually yeah. welcome it? That, because... that think you're difficult. Yeah, gosh. No, no, we had so much fun. It's fun when you can think alike. Mm. And you say, oh my God, you know, that color blue, you know, is, has to be the right thing. You know, your last album, Barbara, was in 2018. It was called Walls. It was a direct reflection of what was going on in, the, in this country. And it was a powerful album. And, you know, I guess the, the question is, why did you decide to, to make an album, uh, a follow-up to Release Me, Release Me 2, as, as your latest record? Like, what prompted you to do that? I actually was collecting songs to make a new studio album. Right. A song I love, love, can't wait to sing by Desmond Child. Oof, I can't wait to hear it. Gorgeous song. And a song that Sinatra sang that I can't remember the title of, Mm -hmm. but it's something I heard on an album a while ago, and I thought, I'd like to record that. But as you know, when you make a record, you have to see people. Yeah. Uh, So you have to talk to arrangers and producers and musicians. And I can't sing with a mask, obviously. (laughs) So... This was the time to go back into the vault mm. and find things that I haven't released yet. You know, the idea of, of making this album and going back, it's the second in the series thus far. I'm hoping there'll be a third or a fourth, but Release Me is now at, at volume two. Yeah. And I wondered whether going back and listening to songs that in some cases you wouldn't have listened to for a long time, um, and, and reacquainting yourself with old performances, whether it kind of struck you emotionally in ways you didn't expect, because it's probably the closest you get to listening to yourself in a way that we listen to you, because you haven't got that immediacy of like, I just recorded this yesterday, I have to finish it. Well, I realized this, the second song, isn't it, You Light Up My Life? That's right, yeah. I remember recording it in 1973. Yeah. But it was like a lousy arrangement. It had no magic. So I never released it. Mm. I know I did a good vocal on it, but I let it disappear. So to re-examine it now yeah. and add what, how about my engineer happens to also be a musician. Right. So he could play congas on it. You know, he could add a guitar part. But a lot of these songs recorded in, from the 60s to the 70s, yeah. you know, it's hard to, to, if we're talking aesthetic, it's yeah. hard to add something in 2021, 2020 to something that's, 40, 50 years old and keep, and keep the same feel, the same... Well, it's even a better feel, You Light Up My Life. Mm. I mean, than when I recorded it. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and I think it had to do with my own psyche at the time. Mm. I don't think I was really happy. And now I'm happy. 
I'm grateful. Mm. You know, I have grandchildren in my life. We have a bigger family now. Even working with, you know, uh, Yoakum on this album, adding things that make me feel like you do now happy. Yeah, yeah. And I think it shows in the mixing. It does. It's beautiful to listen to. When you when you choose a song that that you want to cover, mm-hmm. what are some of the distinguishing features that that draw you to that particular song in the first place? Let's talk about the one we're talking about. It's King. a Carol King uh-huh. song. Yeah. Um, you heard it around the same time that she released it on her album Fantasy. Yeah. And decided in the moment that you wanted to cover that. Yeah. Why? What What is it about? Out of all the songs that you could apply your voice to, what is it? What What do you look for? Is it a feeling? Is it a? Is it? Do you think about how it's going to be heard by people? How it fits into your overall no, life? I just I listen to the melody and what the lyric says. Mm. The only time, you know, I loved working with Barry Gibb. But I couldn't understand some of the words. I, I couldn't act them. Right. I couldn't find the character. Right. You know, because they were more obtuse, That's more interesting obscure. you use the term act, the words. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, please explain that. Because yeah. I, I spend my life talking to musicians about feeling the words and feeling this and mm-hmm. being so immersed in the performance that sometimes mm-hmm. it gets emotional. And yet you, I've never heard anyone refer to it in that way, almost like well, a character. Because when I started to sing... Remember, I wanted to play Romeo and Juliet, you know, a doll's house, Chekhov. I was in the libraries reading, you know, Shakespeare that I wanted to do. And uh, I couldn't get a job, couldn't get a walk on even. You know, I, for the part of a beatnik, I used to look like that. I wore black stockings. I wore a trench coat, you know, going to my acting class and observing, writing letters to Lee Strasberg, but never sending them. But the see- seeing what the truth was, you know, seeing, observing when something matters, it was always based on the truth. The truth, even if a person was doing a, an acting exercise, sitting there, this, this actor, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was over the top. And so I never quite understood his talent or non-talent. But when he had to sit still and do a, a simple relaxation exercise, it was so fascinating to watch. So that a little movement of a finger or an eyebrow was riveting. Mm. It taught me a lot at 15. That, I was 15 when I saw him do that. So I would write about that to Lee Strasberg about the simplicity of, and the truth in being, not acting. Mm. But, so now I can't get a job as an actress. I entered the talent contest and won, and then that got me a job at another nightclub, the Bonsoir. And so I used my acting techniques when I sang a song. That means, and I could play Juliet in a song. I couldn't get a job playing her. Playing right. When Marty Ehrlichman, my manager, after a few years, I said, I'd like to play these Shakespearean parts. I'd like to, you know, fulfill my fantasy of a classical actress so I could um, play Cleopatra in both forms by George Bernard Shaw and as well as Shakespeare, the young Cleopatra as well as the older woman. Mm. I said, on TV, I'll do it. I don't want to be on the stage again, but... Uh, they said, well, is she going to sing in it? And I said, well, Romeo and Juliet has become West Side Story already. Mm. 
What do you mean, singing it? I'm an actress. I want to be serious here. I could do that in my nightclub act. One of the things we worked on was, you know, creating someone's face, let's say. So it's not just singing, it's acting. Mm. So I was always an actress who sings. Yeah, but when people hear you sing, mm -hmm. you must see the emotion pouring out of them and the, and, the, and the times that you have performed. You know, watching the way people react to your music, I wonder how, how you rationalize that because in, in many respects, you're acting a part to, to present this song, but people right. are absorbing it in the most emotional way. Well, I mean, when I'm singing, on my last concert, I sang a song I love by Stephen Sondheim. That's a personal thing. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking of an experience so I can be really in the moment. I never sing a song twice the same, you know? I love experimenting. It's, it's about being in the moment and acting. You don't, you don't plan a, a reading in, in the way I work. Mm. It has to be, you know, one, one time it's angrier, the next time it's sadder, the next time it's funnier. So how do you know, with a, with a song like Once You've Been In Love, which I believe yeah. was one take. One take. Over 50 years ago, you recorded it, and you listen back to it now. Yeah. To have the presence of, of mind to know that's what I was going for. You, you know, I'm, I'm stuck on this because the, the artistic process is just so known for, over, for too much analysis. Like, yeah. oh my God, da, 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 da. And I was much younger, and I wasn't happier. But that's a song about, I was paying homage in a sense to the marriage of the Bergmans who wrote the lyrics. Right. You know, I hope to one day, maybe I was thinking, I could change my mind too, you know, and sing the next one, the next take in another, re for another reason. Mm. But whatever it is, it has to be real. I can't do something I did 10 minutes ago. I can do something else. But that's why I love it when you leave, even on the first version of, of you know, Release Me and other albums, you mm -hmm. leave these outtakes in between mm -hmm. where you're so playful in the studio. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. like, there was, I think, it, I can't remember which album it mm -hmm. was, but there was a moment, on, there was mm -hmm. a song called Home, and someone's like, okay, Barbara, here we go, home, mm. take one. And you yeah. said, wish I was at home. Is that on the record? Yeah. And what's amazing about it is that it's take one. It's not even like you've done 50 takes and you're just tired and you want to go home. <laughs> you yeah. haven't even recorded one take yet. And you're like, I just want to go home. That's funny. And I then you just that. nail it. Like you just get on that track and you just pour your heart and what sounds like your yeah. heart and soul into this into this performance. But you, it's, I yeah. guess in a weird way, it's not a question. It's an observation. It's almost like it surprises you. Like, okay, I open my mouth and it comes out. That's why it's important to be in the moment. Because I'm in the moment, so I'm saying, I'd really like to be home myself. A, it's probably truthful, or maybe I'm kidding. You're definitely- I'm probably kidding. A bit of both, maybe. Yeah, but whatever it is, it affects the way I sing. Right. I, I learned that so early on yeah. from these acting classes wow. and watching somebody be so interesting when they were not that talented. They were able to turn it on through technique. It's about being truthful to yourself. At this moment, I don't feel like singing this song, but I have to sing it. Something, so it comes out differently. It's like acknowledging 
what's really going on. Mm. Yeah, not being afraid to actually tell the truth in the moment at all times. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's kind of partly why it was so tough for you early on, because that's clearly who you are, right? A truth sayer, someone who doesn't shy away from trying yeah. to find the truth right. in, in all things. Yeah. I was interested in therapy. That's like the truth will set you free. I Jesus love it. Christ said that, right? Yeah. It's so true. When did you start to feel the happiness that you feel now? Well, more and more in the last few years. I'm I'm very pleased that I was able to do the work I did. But it doesn't mean I have to go on and on till I'm, you know, wheeled around in something or other. No. I'm sad about the fact I couldn't direct some of the films I wanted to direct. Can I ask you why that is? Because you've mentioned it a couple of times in the conversation and it's clearly something you carry with you. Well, yeah, it's the reason I wrote a book because Mm. I can control the book I write. I guess maybe I'm being naive. But as as someone who has achieved all that you've achieved, and I'm sorry to keep referring to your achievements, I know they're Mm. temporary constructs, Mm -hmm. but they add up to, to the ability to be able to do things with control. When you've done, when you've been successful, ideally you get mm-hmm. more control. That's mm-hmm. probably the one good thing that comes out of it, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, it sounds to me like in that area of your life, you're still fighting that fight. That's the way it is. It's complicated. Look, you know how many we just counted the my book. You know how many pages it is? Six hundred pages. Eight hundred and twenty-four. Wow. How wow. about my lucky number is twenty-four? It happened to. Be 824. Wow. Now, I even counted the words because they do a count for the yeah. words. Now, I can't remember it from the other day, but it, whatever it added, let's, it's six numbers. That's how many thousands of words, right? <sighs> and how long have you been working on this book for? Oh, my God. I started writing longhand, you know, many, many years ago, 2000. Now, first of all, I've kept journals for many well, years. that helps. So I have like 25 journals that could remind me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what, why did I write that in that? Oh, yeah, that's what happened and brings back my memories. Mm. Uh, and I have a researcher who looks up my life because I don't want to. This was very hard. Who wants to relive no your life? No. And for someone who's present all the time, trying to stay present all the time, that's just torture. The worst. Yeah. And I've been asked to write a book for 40 years. I never did it. Yeah. But because I couldn't make films that I wanted to make, I've been offered films to direct, but they don't hit me mm-hmm. in a place that it says, I have to make that film. Mm. That doesn't interest me to just direct a film. Well, it's because it's a tool of ambition. Doing something that you don't feel is a step towards doing something that you feel. And so getting to the place where you can do what you want to do, and you don't have to do that anymore. Right? No. Those I don't have to sing to in public anymore. No. But thankfully, you choose to once in a while. Do you regret coming out and saying, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, done? I never really said that over the years, even right. though people said, oh, this is supposed to be your final. I never really said that. I say it Barbara because- Walters asked oh. you, is this it for good, never again? And you went, never again. I'll tell you why. <laughs> because I don't like it. It gives me the willies. Yeah, I get it. When I wrote the letter to Lee Strasberg when I was 15, mm. I said, you know, this is, people are elevated on a stage. You have to have something really to present. You're not down in the audience. We're looking up at the stage. Well, Mm. you better have something Mm, to mm, give us. mm. 
It was a privileged state to be elevated like that. And I thought, but, you know, people want you, you see how acts, you know, they had walk from the stage to the other side of the stage, you know. I'd like to, if I sang, I wouldn't mind, as I said to Marty before I did the Hyde Park, I said, if I could just sit in a stool and sing, that I could do. But to have to have dress fittings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I never changed my clothes enough. I see they change on these television shows. Every time they come out in an hour show, the person like on SNL, you know, they have a new outfit. It's like six fittings. I don't want to have fittings. I don't like fittings. That's the most Brooklyn you've sounded in this entire conversation, by the way. I don't want to have fittings. I don't like fittings. I don't. I love beautiful clothes. But here's the point. I don't want to be a clown on a stage, you know, walking and everybody's below me. Feels odd. But normally people with stage fright say that before the show. They say, I don't ever want to do this again. I'm going to do tonight. I never want to do this again. Don't make me do this anymore. And then they go on and then they come off and they go, it was amazing. I had the greatest. So you come off going, it was awful. It was like, not that it was awful. But just, yeah. But it's that, God, I'm trying to hit that note and... Try to remember the lyrics to this Uh, without looking at the words. So how much of this is about your level of expectation for yourself and perfection? it's it's more about that. Yeah, that's tough because you'll never, ever reach that. So that's why when I get off the stage after a, you know, doing some concerts, Mm. I always go, I cannot do this again. Mm. And then I try to get a movie made and no one wants to make this wonderful movie about this incredible woman before her time, Margaret Bork White, you know, first photojournalist. You know, if you want to be an artist and you want to reach your fans, there's so many ways you can do it now. And if you have the resources at your fingertips, you need less investment or less, you know, interference from other people. Isn't this something that you can ultimately make yourself? No, because I need the actors. When I first redid it, I got Kate Blanchett and Colin Firth. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. The deal was there. Mm. When I spoke to Colin five years ago and Kate, they they thought they were too old already now. Making a movie is not just about yourself. I can Mm. do a concert by myself. Mm. But for me to direct a movie, I have to see every shot. And that's the three movies I was able to make. But this one is about photography and a woman's passion for her work She had as much passion for her work as she had for the man in her life. That's an interesting thing, the pull. Thank God I have a husband now who likes when I work, who went to see every goddamn concert I was ever in since I met him. I say, aren't you bored with me? How could you watch this? He says it's always different. Amazing. But no, you can't control everything. I can't control everything. I have to have, you know, thank God Nick Nolte wanted to be in it. Then. Yeah. In, in Yentl, I wanted Richard Gere to play it because he has a kind of femininity within the masculinity. Mm-hmm. And he said, but I can't be in it if you're going to direct and act in the movie. I said, oh, that's too bad because I want a pretty man, you know, where the sexuality is yeah. mixed. And ahead of its time at that time too. Yeah. You are such a... A sort of prolific and generous collaborator and not too far behind your own achievements. I think about the way you've achieved with others and and who you've sung with and mm-hmm. 
just how, you know, you seem to love the idea of collaboration. You, you love the idea of sharing an experience, don't you? It's clear. I love working with writers. I love making something out of nothing. See, I love the process. Mm. That interests me. Mm. And I normally, when I'm making the film, I don't even know. It's, a lot of it's coming from the subconscious. Mm. I want it to be you. It's a, it's a beautiful song, yourself and Willie Nelson coming uh -huh. together. And just the chemistry on the record is fantastic. But we're only hearing his version with you now. The previous version we've heard is with Blake Shelton. What's the story? How did that happen? Because I, I know that Willie has said on the record multiple times that you're the one person that he'd always wanted to sing with. That's why I sang it with him. Right. I mean, that's why I was interested in singing it with him. And so flattery gets you somewhere, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he, no, he's an icon, you yeah. know? And uh, the, the, the difference in our voices is interesting. Oh, yeah. So from a sonic point of view, you know, yeah. just thought it would be interesting. And when you went back and, and listened to the original version or versions and decided to put it together, what did you hear after all those years of you, of, of, from, from Willie? And how did you sort of compose the song this, uh, today that what, as opposed to back in the day? We had to listen to all of his tracks mm. because some were. And then I had to adjust, I think, to his somewhat. We were able to do that, too. Wow. Match them up. And when we're off, we're off, which is reality again. That's what's really lovely about and it. Truth. Is that it's, yeah, because I think people are so used to hearing you sing songs so perfectly. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, then you hear Willie Nelson come in and all this character of the voice kind of brings you with him and you bring him with you. And right. it's this beautiful, just another one of the brilliant collaborations. The thing that brought us together too was Star is Born. Chris Christopherson mm. is uh, a friend of mine and a friend of his. Mm. It was like, we were meant to do something together. I believe in fate and destiny, and I believe in the power of the will. You haven't been to my main house, but I didn't buy that house when it was for sale because my business matters to say you can't afford it. And you have to sell your ranch over there across the street. So I never bought it. I bought it finally seven years later or nine years, seven, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you know that the people who bought it and remodeled it, remodeled it exactly like I imagined? What? You know, from plain plastered walls that it used to have. It didn't have an entrance. Mm. It didn't have room for a man in my life upstairs. And now the house was built with an, an entrance, mm -hmm. a room, for a man to have his own space, mm -hmm. paneling on the walls for my, I was do, doing an Americana house, my love of America. So are you any closer to understanding where this faith in fate comes from, this idea of it will all work out with a little bit of will? You know, because in the book I talk about my first apartment when I was moved out of Brooklyn at 16, and I stood in the doorway of my little bedroom that me and my girlfriend uh, went to Summerstock together. We wanted to be actresses at 13, 14, 15. And we found this apartment and went to this acting school right next door. We had no closet space. I mean, literally, it's like we had this bed and we had, didn't even have room for end tables. But I stood in the door, and I never liked to make my bed. I could, when I was sent away to camp, I couldn't figure out how they made a corner. I just could There are certain things I can't figure out. Yeah, you just weren't taught. 
I couldn't make the bed. And I, it was a waste of time to me. I'm just going to go back in it. You sound like our 13-year-old son. That's his reasoning as well. <laughs> Why would I bother making it? I'll be in it in 10 hours. I don't understand it. Right. And I was too busy, you know, acting yeah. Yeah. for my classes. And, yeah. and I remember standing in the doorway and thinking, I'm going to have to make it. I'm going to have to become famous to afford someone else to make my bed. True. So that's the will. It's the will. Like somebody asked me, well, how do you... How do you hold a note so long? And I said, because I want to. Wow. I never had singing lessons. I just said, I want, I can hear the note being held long. It'll sound pretty next to that chord. So I held the note. So much instinct. Like the thread that's run through our conversation is just, you seem very open to living your life through instinct without yeah. trying to overthink things too much and just yeah, yeah. really st- and, and focusing on what you love in the moment. So that's why it's so interesting to me that, again, getting back to this process of listening to songs that have been in your archive for a long time, it's rare, I'd imagine, for you to do that. Do you do that often? Do you go through your old things? And- I don't even remember. Jay, my A&R man, he says, you know, you sang this song and I don't even remember doing wow. the song with Kermit the Frog. Because it was for the wet album. Right. And the rainbow connection had to do with water. So that was the connection. And then he says to me, You recorded it. I said, Gee, play it for me. I didn't remember it. Is that the original vocal that's on the new version, or is it, did you redo the vocal? It's a original. I never. What's crazy about that vocal is how. The original vocal. What's crazy about that vocal is how you are known for finding ways to move within a note. You can create emotional resonance from the start of one note to the to the end of that note, and you can cover a lot of different ground just the way you use your voice. You can sing something, and I can feel very different at the end of that note than I did at the beginning. I have no idea what you're talking about, but, and it's true, I don't. I do work from instinct, and because I wanna make a sound, I make it. Mm. But it's, I don't, it's coming from my willpower to do it or something, visualizing that I want to become this or this or this. But now, it's like I took up painting a few years ago because I couldn't, I didn't buy the painting I wanted at auction. I lost it. And so I had to paint it. And I find that I actually can paint. My son's a better painter, but I actually can paint. But once I did a few paintings, I thought, I don't have to do that anymore. You see what I mean? It's like I challenge myself. Right. And then once I do it, I go, what, what's next? Or what's not next? Can I tell you what my favorite song on the album is? Yeah. It is Living Without You. Don't it's, tell me. Okay, it's not my favorite. My favorite's Be Aware, but it's one of my favorites. My, my favorites are Be Aware. Yeah. I love Living Without You. I love that song. I think it's so oh, sweet. Oh, I like the song. Well, what don't you like about it? I don't like singing it. Which part? No, I like what it says. Yeah. I like, I don't like the melody of it. Right. Okay. I was just writing about Randy Newman, I mean, right. recently, meeting him before he was anybody, basically. Richard Perry brought him to me. Yeah. And I liked him. Yeah. And I liked those two songs I recorded. 
That's what's it. Most of my songs are about breakups. There's a lot of breakup songs. Yeah. But there's, but there's also some really beautiful, uplifting songs as well. And even this is the thing about, I, I think that it's part of the human spirit, isn't it? To want to wallow in music when we're heartbroken. Isn't that like a, yeah. a human right? Oh, it's great. You feel better after it. It's like a good cry. I really like the way that you play around with the piano of it. I think it's, it's, it's a strange song for me in the sense that it's kind of half playful. It's like Randy Newman when he gets very half playful, but he's yeah. also melancholic. Well, I worked with Walter A. on that yeah. in terms of what was the background rhythmic section. Mm. I just didn't like it. Mm. We, we've changed it. Yeah. I love the arrangement. From the original. I love the arrangement. It leans into that oh, just good. really sort of good, good, good. that beautiful little melancholic, like right, playful piano. Right, right, You know, I want to talk a little bit about the song that you did with Barry Gibb that yeah. made it onto this. Barry was so just thrilled to be able to talk about his experience of working with you when we met earlier oh. this year. And um, I just loved loved him as a person to talk yeah. to. He was just yeah. a wonderful human being. Yeah. The last, he had mm. done the whole album. What I said to you is that I didn't think about understanding the words then because I was actually writing the script of Yentl. Right. So I thought this was great. You do it. Yeah. It was the easiest album I ever made. He's so terrific. Yeah. You know, I, singing along, playing the instruments, whatever he did. Yeah, he's immensely talented. He knows how to produce a record. Yeah. And he was so fun to be with, you know, take pictures with. Yeah, I mean, the album cover is iconic. and But the album has gone, gone on to do, do such huge numbers. And it was, you know, I, I think to this day, your most successful record. What did it feel like to make a record like that with someone like that at the time? Because it felt like a bit left, left of center at the, at, the, at the time, I think. No, I mean, I just thought he was so gifted that he could do all the part. He could take, I had to sing 10 times each song. Wow. And he just knew what to do with it. I just trusted him because I'd been to Dodger Stadium the night before. And uh, wow, you know, like what, 60,000 people were there? And I said, this guy knows what he's doing. And he was sexy, you know? So it was like, I saw us all in white, yeah. you know, always in white. And uh, it was just fun to, you know, I could be there and he's doing things and I just had to sing. That was the first time I think after that record came out that, that you, stopped making an album every year or two albums every year. Yeah, it was just like yeah, two, yeah, two, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. two, two the whole time. What prompted that? I mean, it was your most successful record. And then at that moment in time, it's like you went, okay, I don't have to do that anymore. I'm doing films. Right, right. I'm doing films now and I can't do that mm. too, mm. you know. It took me 15 years to get Yentl made and onto the screen. It makes sense. So. It was your first dream, right? From what you've told me, that's, that was the door you wanted to go through first. Yeah, for a long time, and nobody wanted to make it, mm. you know? Yeah. So, I oh, to... what, didn't you like Sweet Forgiveness? Uh, that, well, that was the other one I was going to yeah, talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, to me, is the most heartbreaking song. Sweet Forgiveness is the most heartbreaking song on the record for me. It's yeah. not only because the subject matter and the performance, but also I feel mm -hmm. bad for that song. You feel bad? Yeah, because, you know, you had it was written, you performed it, but it's taken this long for it to actually be heard. Well, do you believe it? I mean, we spent so much time on the other song that he was orchestrating, yeah. Ordinary Miracles, yeah. that there was only time uh, for one take. It makes me ask you what your relationship with these kind of songs are, that you're able to leave them and just just let them sit and, and not be heard. You know, a song mm -hmm. like that, to me, to hear it now, it's just mm -hmm. like a forgotten classic. I'm glad you think so. And Walter A is so talented that he wrote the music for Walls. Wow. It's such a beautiful melody because... Yeah. Alan wrote the lyric, and then I tweaked it a bit with just 
bringing in the psychological aspect of mm. Walls. Mm. And he did such a magnificent job on that lyric. Then I brought Walter in and uh, turned out really good. So the book is finished. No. I mean, it's finished. Yes. Almost. Yeah. yeah. Because now I have to condense the next 23 years into the epilogue and just hit the highlights of it, of the next 23 years, because I didn't work as much. Mm. That's why I started the conversation where mm -hmm. I did at the beginning, because being here now and really it's fascinating to me that you were able to build a life for yourself and step away from all of the success and those expectations yeah to say that no i'm not oh, yeah. going to just keep doing the same thing over and over again right which a lot of artists i think ultimately fall victim to that need to just keep the wheel turning at all times i don't have that now i like maybe traveling and or getting in the truck with my husband again and seeing america even how yeah. We couldn't do it for a while. Yeah. Just going to states I've never been in, being with family. Yeah. I mean, when I last wore this sweater, it was for the... Oh, you see a tiny bit of it. The Love is the Answer album. I think it was number one, wasn't it, Jay? Yeah. It was. I never remember awards or number ones, nothing. I have to ask Grace, my assistant... What did I, was I nominated for oh, that? Oh, I'm not surprised because if you take a look at the at your legacy and what you've achieved, there isn't anything else. It's, it's remarkable. I mean. I just don't remember awards. From the moment that you started working to the moment that you, to the 23 years that, of the epilogue. So from the book, part of your life, to the epilogue part of your life, splitting those things into two. Has, has time gone faster or slower during the epilogue? than it did when you were working nonstop? Probably slower, but now it's fast again. Now we're running out of time, you know? Mm. Now it's, the world is not in good shape. The environment is not in good shape. How do you feel having spent so much of your life and, put, and having put so much into trying to raise awareness for causes that mean something to you when you see that a lot of these conversations are still happening and it's still, it's. I'm, I'm only happy about women and have they, you know, because I started my heart center, women's heart center, and I think it was about 2007. Mm -hmm. When women are put down and, you know, they're trying to be kept in the background and not allowed their own power, uh, so many things happen very slowly. After the Me Too movement, I think that's when things and I, there's a lot about that that is odd, you know, in terms of relationships that have to be built, more communication between men and women to set that straight. Mm. But um, there's a lot to do to fix the world. I think about a song like Rainbow Connection, and I know that it's, you know, it's, it's being released during the month of Pride. And, and I think about the fans that you have in the LGBTQ community and how uh -huh. you've been so welcomed in and... And you're an icon. And, and I wondered if you could just share a few thoughts about that sort of unwavering and undying love and support you've received from the LGBTQ community because mm -hmm. you've been very supportive in turn as well. And it's obviously another cause. Well, of that's why I worked for 25 years to try to get the play on The Normal Heart when I saw it in 1986. And it's about everyone's right to love. It's again those stereotypes of what is normal. Yeah. 
But it's you know when I, yeah. when I speak to my my friends you know who who are part of that that community um, and they just they adore you and they love you so much and and you know I, I think that the, not just the work that you've done um, the advocacy work and the work as an ally yeah. but also just your music and your voice the the emotion that that that, that you that you seem to create really speaks to the idea of of identity and wanting to just be yourself, right? Right, right. Like unashamedly exactly. be yourself. Yeah, that community was my first fans. Mm. So I was very grateful to them and I still am, you know. Did you see the cover of this new album? Yeah, it's beautiful. Isn't it's fantastic. It neat? It's a great throwback feeling of like it's just a sense yeah, of like nostalgia, yeah. but also it feels really modern. It's cool. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah. I think this album is so brilliant. Um, I'm going to finish our conversation talking yeah. about Once You've Been In Love One More Time um, because to me it's it's kind of like the perfect album closer. Was it your decision to, to put it at the end like that? That yes, one take course, that moment, of course. of course. I had this dream. I love the sound of the orchestra. So I said, I'd love to just stand right in front of them and as if I'm in a real live concert. Mm. And hear those instruments really close and not through my headphones. Wow. So you got the full power. The only problem is, and this is where Jochen was a genius too, because I don't know what he did to make it sound like he gave me different choices of sound that would somehow change. I don't know what it did, but when you do something like that, you can't edit very easily. You no. can't mix things because as you bring up Let's say you're bringing up my voice. Yeah, you're bringing you're up everything else as well. Yeah. The orchestra down, but I want to hear the orchestra, you know, rather than my voice. Um, but you can't single out. Just raise the violins in that section, because then if you raise the violins, then my voice goes down. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a hard thing to mix. And then he figured out something at the end. I said, God, it sounds like I'm in a vacuum. You know, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't fit the rest of the songs. First, he thought it was impossible to fix. And then I don't know what he did. He just did his magic, technically did something mm, mm. that made the song sound like the other songs in a way. You know, because they were all recorded in, in different, different places and different, different times. Yeah. That's right. This is what's crazy about this album is just how, uh, like, th there's such a beautiful, again, aesthetic yeah. feeling across right. the whole thing. See, because when I program something, it has to be the way life works to me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not only musically, but especially um, what I'm talking about. Once You've Been In Love had that up, grand feeling. One of my favorite songs on the record is One mm. Day a Prayer. Because uh, and what really surprised me when I was doing a bit of research into that was that mm -hmm. that existed as an instrumental and that you just fell in love with the instrumental mm -hmm. piece of music, right? Asking the Bergmans. Oh, asking Michelle. We spent so many wonderful times, you know, doing music, singing harmonies. Mm. As a matter of fact, did I ever put that on my Just For The Record? It is. You know, I was very proud of that. It wasn't things put together through the years. It was things literally just for the record. It should have been called Just For This Record. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> just For This Record, it was only real things. Me and Michelle mm. harmonizing at a piano 
with a little tape recorder. Guess what? I still have it today. Wow. I still trust that tape recorder, Sony tape recorder. And you see play and forward. The new gadgets I can't even figure out. When I was in France with him, you know, we were playing at the piano. He had written two of the most gorgeous melodies that I've ever heard. This is 30 years ago. I said to Alan Bergman during the pandemic, Alan, why have you never put lyrics to these melodies? And he said, there was something with the, I don't even know the legality of it. The point is he wrote lyrics to them. Now, those two I want on my new album, these French songs by Michelle that Alan Bergman now has written lyrics to. Wow. So there are going to be things on the new album of just the songs I love. Wow. But I still have more to do. It's like I want to do so many albums, really, of... And you still had this other record that you were, they were thinking about making before quarantine that's still in play? The one with Desmond Child on it? And... Well, Desmond Child going to be on the, mm. the next one I make. Mm. Mm. But, um, well, no, I wanted to put together, sing other Sondheim songs and put together just... Streisand sings on time, all S's. I love the album titles. I have to, I have to observe that honestly. The fact that it's like, it's like, first album, second album, third. Just like you're just so well, flippant with your album titles. Well, the sometimes. point was when the you know the record company wanted me to name it like what was it, Marty? Sweet and saucy. Sweet and saucy. Streisand. <laughs> and I go, what? What Marty did give me when I was only twenty years old is I said, I imagine things, and I have to have, I don't care what they pay me. Mm. I still don't know what I made in Funny Girl even, you know. But I know that I said to Marty, the only way I could sign a contract is, uh, like, nobody can tell me the songs I can sing. Nobody can tell me what kind of albums to make. Mm. Is that okay? Mm. I mean, he got me creative control. And that's worth more than anything. anything. So I could say I'm going to make a French album now or I'm going to make a classical album now, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've talked a bit about it, but just to finish, you know, a Bacharach David song like Be Aware, a song like that, you know, I think about the timeless songs that that they have written throughout the years. Mm -hmm. Um, Alfie. Yeah. Gosh. Changed your life, right? Be Aware is contemporary. Totally. Because it's about today as well. 100%. I was shocked to realize it was 50 years old. Yeah. But when we looked at it on TV, when I sang it on TV, it was like nothing. It sounds like nothing. I mean, it was on a big, big set. And I was singing it live to a track and you could barely hear it. Now, by giving us the chance, the opportunity to remix it, and add instruments that you couldn't hear or bring especially instruments out. It's a moving start to the album and it really stops stops you what you're doing and makes you really consider what yeah, to the yeah, point of the song. Yeah, yeah. Are you aware right now? Yeah. You want to hear how I don't remember my own things? <laughs> yeah, sure. I had sung Alfie. Mm-hmm. I didn't love the orchestration. I actually had it redone. Anyway, I'm in a taxi cab going to a session of one of my, uh, you know, like Randy Waldman or somebody who plays for me. And I went to his house because he has the keyboards Mm -hmm. in the valley. On the radio, the guy's playing. I hear someone sing Alfie, and I think, boy, that's pretty good. 
I wonder who that is. I call, when I get to the place, I, we called the station because I wanted to know who kind of sounds like me, but wasn't me. And they say Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Marty, is that the truth? Jay? <laughs> I couldn't imagine it was me. So that's funny. I have a funny memory. Yeah, but you're so sharp and so like hyper focused on what you care about in the moment. That's why. Yeah. That's what I'm getting out of this conversation. That's what I've taken away from this is yeah. I should focus more on what really matters in the moment. I guess that's my right. last question is because yeah. I'm obsessed with the idea of awareness at the minute, both self awareness in yeah. terms of my growth, mm -hmm. but also trying to have awareness for others because that's important. And I think we've learned anything in the last 18 months. It's like we need to be aware of each other. Yeah. And what's right for each other. How do you? stay aware? How do you stay present about what's going on around the world? <laughs> well, the first thing I do in the morning is read the New York Times. Mm. Then I read the Washington Post. Mm. Then I read The Week magazine, which is the magazine I love on the weekends because it usually comes Friday or Saturday. But I tweet. You read my tweets too? Yeah, of course. You're active. <laughs> You're active. And that's you tweeting them? Yeah. That's, it's you on there? What do you, you think? You have to ask the question these days. If people the have other people, tweets? People have other people tweeting for them what all the time. What are you talking about? Other people tweet for people. No. Yes. How do they know what you're thinking? They are very good at, at faking it. I'm glad it's you tweeting. Why do you like Twitter so much? Because it's instant. Because you're talking about today's news. Yeah. I don't understand. You know, when you believe in truth and the power of the truth, mm. you cannot bear lies. And that's why I wrote that song, Don't Lie to Me. But I guess it was too political for people. I, I love that understand. you made that album, though. I thought Walls was a brilliant and brave record, and I thought I love that you made that. I had to. Mm. I had to make it. You know, if it didn't sell a copy, it didn't matter. I mean, it mattered. I would have liked it to be successful. But how about that? Isn't that interesting with people? Yeah. Well, because it's scary being faced with the truth. It's scary because what it does at the very least, I think, for, for, for people, if I can mm -hmm. speak on behalf of people, mm -hmm. is that it, it reminds you that you're not, you're not acknowledging it. You're not absorbing it. You're not seeing it for what it is. And distractions are great. That's great for business. Distractions are great for business. They just keep us moving. I don't get it. Mm. You never have. And that's what makes you Barbara no. Streisand. You've constantly told the truth and put it through your art. You've walked away when there was a desire for you to stay. You know, you've taken forever to write your book because you wanted to and you needed to. And now right. you're putting out music the way you want to put it out. I, yeah. I salute it every step of the way. Oh, good. It's amazing how you built all of this and this life for yourself through singing and acting the, the roles that you need to to create the emotional resonance. And mm -hmm. you have done so much for people um, and, for, and for so many fights. And so I hate that you're still fighting it, but I love that you're still fighting it, if you know what I mean. Would you, would you ever uh, consider a biopic? Is that a step too far now the memoir's done? Like a movie about your life? Never. <laughs> God, no. Cut. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants to write? I can't write about myself, I thought. Mm. I mean, I get bored having to think about my life. And when that happened and when that happened, it's like there's a thing called Barbara Archives. I can't look at it. It feels too egotistical to mm. look at something that's written about yourself. Mm. I made her read all the books about me because I've never read a book about me. <laughs> Who the hell wants to read about yourself? I want to tell my story from my point of view and from my memories. Oh, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> You're so sweet. Thank you, Zane. 
Yeah, words fail me. They failed me at the start of that conversation. They're still failing me. The incredible Barbara Streisand right here on the interview series. I will never forget that day. I hope you enjoyed what came of it. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon.